Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 35. This is the word of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go with you before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this morning we have, that we can gather together as believers and come to look to your word, to hear from you this morning, this great story of the passion, and see what you did on our behalf. We thank you for this passage and for the work Christ did. So bless our hearts and minds and ears this morning, for it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. If I were to ask you, what were your most hurtful moments in life, they can almost always be summed up with three hurts, three that form something of a family. To be abandoned, to be rejected, or to be betrayed. The passage we're looking at this morning is a picture of Jesus being abandoned, being rejected, and being betrayed. To be abandoned is to have someone that you rely on, someone that you have confidence in, someone typically with greater resources than you have, who for some reason walks away from you and leaves you behind. A child whose parent, mother or father, steps away to go somewhere else and abandons that child, feels a hurt that never, ever goes away. To be abandoned. The second is to be rejected. To have someone that you have a relationship with, someone that you built confidence in, who now at some point, for some reason, decides now we're going to separate our ways, I'm going a different way. To be rejected causes a pain in a person's heart that is sometimes impossible to ever heal. And then to be betrayed, to have someone with whom you've engaged in a relationship of confidence betray you again creates a chasm in the heart that never, ever heals. It feels incomprehensible to you that this could have happened. In storytelling, they have what they call a dramatic irony. And that is where in the play, in the story, everyone begins to see that the victim is being betrayed, but the only one who doesn't know it is the one who's betrayed. And then when that is finally revealed, they feel the full crushing weight of it. To be betrayed like this is a crushing moment. Jesus in his life, in these last moments as we're seeing, is a man who himself is being abandoned, being rejected, and being betrayed. And as we come to this passage, we see it now all kind of coming to a head. Where are we going? Well, we saw last week that they had just finished their Passover meal, the Lord's Supper. They spent this time together. And when we come to our passage this morning, we see that Jesus now tells them 
let us leave here in Jerusalem and go to the Mount of Olives. And he says they did it after they sung a hymn. They sung a hymn at the close of the Passover meal. Now, the hymn that they sung, we know what it would have been. It would have been Psalms 113 to 118. And if I were to just read for you the last words of Psalm 118, you might see how closely related these stories are. Psalm 118, just the last few verses. This is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine on us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up uh, to the horn of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. In this psalm, they now pray in remembrance of the God who is their God, who is their Messiah, knowing that God will bind this sacrifice up to the altar, and that sacrifice will be made on their behalf. So the hymn the disciples sung with Jesus was a reminder that there's a sacrifice coming. And so Jesus and his disciples head out to the Mount of Olives. They go over there to a place called Gethsemane, and we'll see this shortly, but Gethsemane is that place where the, uh, the sacrifice would happen, where this, this sacrifice would be talked about. But as we come to this passage, we see Jesus abandoned as the great shepherd. Jesus comes with his disciples and tells them, and he says, it is written, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after that, I am raised up and I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus talks here about being struck down. And he makes mention of this passage from the prophet Zechariah, actually, chapter 13. And in Zechariah 13, there's this command that comes from God that says, with an imperative, strike down these false prophets. But Jesus now takes these words and changes them slightly to say, speaking in God's voice, that I, God, will strike down the shepherd. And with these words, Jesus is saying that he is the shepherd and that it is God who is doing the striking down. It is God who is bringing down his vengeance on Jesus himself. And as the disciples leave the Mount of Olives, they make their way hearing these words, wondering what is really going on. Now, we've heard Jesus make these passion predictions several times in chapter 16 and chapter 17 and chapter 20. He keeps reminding them that I will be betrayed and crucified and on the third day rise again. He, they hear these words and they've got to be wondering in their minds, how is it that Jesus can be struck down? He's the holy man of God. How is it that the Messiah can fail to bring down his holy angels and defeat the Romans? How is it that God himself would turn his back on his beloved? He says that you will all fall away. He says that you will all desert me. And the word that's used there is the Greek word scandalizo, from which we get our word scandalize, to be a scandal. And what Jesus is saying is, I will become a scandal to you and cause you to fall away. If I could use an illustration, you might think of Bernie Madoff. Remember Bernie Madoff, the great financial criminal? He takes money from thousands of people, 
gives false bank statements, believing, leading them to believe that they're making a lot of money when they're not, and he ends up stealing billions of dollars. When the scandal broke, Bernie Madoff fell. Now, I was not personally scandalized by that. I didn't have any money with him, uh, and, and I wasn't associated with him, so it didn't affect me. But his wife was scandalized by his actions. She had to live with the shame of what he had done. His two sons had to live with the shame of what he had done. In fact, one of his sons commits suicide because he was so scandalized. When Jesus says that I will become a scandal to you, he's saying that you will all fall away from me because you will see what they are doing to me. You will be afraid to be associated with me. So the idea of being a scandal here is a serious matter. Jesus is saying that you will all fall away because of me. Now this word scandal, again, scandalizo is used in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus is using the parable of the sower and says there's a sower that goes along and he throws some seeds that lands on healthy soil, some lands on rocky soil, some in the weeds. When he talks about the seeds that land in the rocky soil, he explains that what happens there is the, uh, the, the ground doesn't allow the seed to take root. And he says when that happens, it springs up quickly, but then it quickly falls away. And that's the word scandal again. It falls away. Why? Because it didn't have enough root. It didn't have anything to hold on to. And so when Jesus, who had given that parable to the disciples not long ago, says, you also will fall away, they had to be thinking, oh, he's using that same word he used when he talked about the seeds that landed on rocky soil that did not have good roots. Well, Peter hears this. His response is, Basically, I don't know about these other guys, but I can tell you, Jesus, I will never fall away from you. I will never reject you. Now, with these words, G, uh, Peter is, is speaking out of his own, perhaps, arrogance. But maybe he's, we can give him some credit. Maybe he's actually saying what he really believed he could do. He really believed he would be faithful in this heated moment. He wanted to tell Jesus, I will never abandon you. Now, you might have thought at this point, Jesus would come up to Peter, put his arms around him and says, thank you, Peter. I knew I could count on you. That's not what he did. Jesus instead turns to him and says, you will betray me. Now, Jesus knew something that Peter didn't at this point. Peter thought he could withstand what's coming. But Jesus knew that there was a storm of evil gathering that would wreak vengeance and terror on his people. And because of that, they would then fall away. Jesus knew what was coming. Peter thought he could stand. Jesus knew he would fall. And with these words, Peter makes a statement, I will be with you. And these very words will come back to haunt him as we get to the end of the story uh, this morning when Jesus himself will look to Peter as Peter denies who he is. So again, we see in this passage, this denial coming. Truly, this very night, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And again, Peter says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. All the disciples themselves said the same. Now, at this point, we see the story being told, the story being set up to show us that there's an action going on here where all the disciples believe that they themselves will be faithful. They will not fall. But the implication here is we know from Jesus' words from Zechariah that they will. 
So this then leads us to the second movement in this story, this prayer meeting in Gethsemane in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Gethsemane is a place where uh, the, the name Gethsemane actually means an oil press. Uh, it's a place where uh, the olives would be gathered and pressed out for the olive oil. And this was very valuable at the time, as it is today. They would press out the olive oil. So it's this olive garden, we might say. Uh, and in this uh, garden with the olive trees, if you've been to Israel, they'll show you these trees which are thousands of years old, they will say. But uh, we know that none of them go back exactly to the time of Jesus because when Jerusalem would fall in AD 70, all of those trees would be cut down to make crosses to crucify those who had rebelled against the Romans. So Israel was laid waste at that point. But at this moment, Jesus and his disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus says, I will go over there to pray. Verse 37, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus here takes Peter, James, and John with him to go further into this garden among the olive grove to pray. Now, Peter, James, and John, you might remember from Matthew 17, the transfiguration, those were the three who went with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. Those were the three who saw Jesus transfigured, and when they did, it says in, in Matthew 17, they then fell down on their faces to praise who Jesus was. They fell down, recognizing the glory that was Jesus. But now we see these three going with Jesus into the garden and falling down and sleeping. So they go, uh, it continues in verse 38, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This idea, Jesus speaking about, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. We begin seeing these words of Jesus. There was in the early church a question about who Jesus really was. Some wanted to maintain his divinity so strongly that they had to deny his humanity. They would say that he was certainly God, and if he was God, he couldn't be subject to the frailties and temptations of being a man. But the early church looked at this passage and many others and saw Jesus suffering, his sorrow, even, he says, to the point of death. And they said then that this is the symptoms and, and recognition of Jesus being a man. He's entirely God, but also 100% man. And this would be solved at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, where they would recognize both Jesus' divinity and his humanity. And later at Chalcedon, they would recognize Jesus' full divinity in who he was. They couldn't escape the fact that in these verses we see him portrayed clearly as a man suffering under the hands of the Romans and even at the hands of his own disciples, his own trusted ones. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he tells them, remain here and watch with me. And then it says in verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
He goes on a little further. This is the first of Jesus' prayers. And his prayer is that if God can, let this cup pass from me. And the word cup here is equivalent to the idea of this coming death. The Old Testament speaks about the cup of God's wrath as it comes down on those who are God's enemies. Jesus now says, if this cup can escape me, uh, can it pass, then let it happen. But nevertheless, not what my will is, but your will. Jesus here was not asking God to deliver him by helping him escape from the garden. He was asking whether or not it's possible for God to set up his kingdom, whether or not God could come and set up his kingdom without these coming events. And we see in God's providence, for God's own reasons, the answer is no. It had to happen this way. And so Jesus is subject to the will of God who makes Jesus subject to the evil will of the Jewish leaders and of the Romans. And this brings us to the question that Jesus raises here, if it's your will. There is mixed up in this entire story a conflict of a wills. On the one hand, we have the will of God. On the other hand, we see the will of man. We see the will of the Jewish leaders. We see the will of the Romans coming up. All of this going on. God uses the evil actions of men to further his own divine plan. And so at the same time, this is God's will. It's also being acted out upon by those who are God's enemies. But God uses all of this in his own plan. And so it continues in verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me for an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Could you not watch with me for an hour? So Jesus went away to pray for a time, it sounds like. He prays for an hour and comes back. And certainly it was late in the evening, probably uh, in the middle of the, uh, the night, two or three in the morning, maybe later, that this is going on. So Jesus comes back and finds Peter and the, these three, Peter, James, and John, asleep. And when he says to them, wake up, watch and pray, he's using these words here, watch, wake up, pay attention. The same words that he's using again when he talks about the coming of the kingdom. He's warning them, reminding them, there's a reason for you to stay awake. There's a reason because tonight what is happening is of such significance, you're going to need God's help. But rather than staying awake and praying themselves, these three fell asleep. These three slumbered while Jesus went off and prayed. And so Jesus comes back a third time. Verse 42 again uh, it's for the second time, it says, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, it can, if it cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And here, Jesus' second prayer is, can it be done without the death? The answer is no. So God then tells them no. In verse 43, and again, it comes back, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time. Jesus comes back and sees them sleeping and basically lets them stay. All right, guys, you can take your rest. Jesus, undoubtedly at this moment, perhaps wondered, all the time I've spent with these men, 
Why can't they stay awake with me now? Where is their fortitude, their constitution that would allow them to stay with me during this trying time? In his humanity, Jesus may have felt that pain. In his divinity, he knew this was all part of God's plan, nevertheless. And so he goes and prays a third time, saying the same words again. Then he comes back to the disciples and says to them, sleep and take your rest later on. Basically, that means wake up now. You can sleep tomorrow, but right now you have to wake up. See, the hour is at hand. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus goes away three times to pray. At the same time, Peter falls asleep three times. In the same light, we'll see shortly, Peter betrays Jesus, denies him three times. And so Matthew is clearly drawing this parallel to show us these events coming together in this fashion. But Jesus now looks at his disciples and wakes them up and again says, Take your sleep later. See, the hour is at hand. And then he says, My betrayer is at hand. In the idea of being at hand, coming near, is the same word again Jesus used about his coming kingdom. He told these disciples repeatedly as he taught them, the kingdom is drawing near. Now he says, my betrayer is not drawing near. And I don't think it's but by coincidence that the same events are leading to the same idea. The coming betrayer is now leading the events that will lead to the coming kingdom. And it is in his sacrifice, his death, that Jesus then inaugurates this kingdom in his resurrection. So Jesus says to them to watch, to wake up. Now notice what he doesn't do. Jesus at this moment doesn't flee from his coming betrayer. He could have ran away. No, instead he stood there and he greeted them when they came. And that leads us to the third movement, the betrayal and arrest. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Just as Jesus was teaching his disciples, Judas shows up. Now you remember after the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal, earlier that evening, Judas had left. He went now and found the Jewish leaders and their men who had come and betrayed Jesus. He collects his 30 pieces of silver and then he begins to bring them back. Perhaps Jesus or Judas knew that Jesus would be found in the Garden of Gethsemane, but that's where he meets him. And when Jesus knows they're coming, again, he doesn't flee, but he stands there to meet them. And so he looks at Judas. He sees him coming. In verse 48, Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. This passage sets up these three moments. The first moment is that Judas will betray Jesus with a kiss. Now, a kiss has always been, and is still today, a symbol of one's affection for another, a symbol of your loyalty to them, your dedication and commitment to them. Judas now uses this as a token of his betrayal. And in this moment, Judas betrays who Jesus is. And when he does, he kisses him and he says, Greetings, Rabbi. Now, Judas is the only one who ever uses the word rabbi of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And it's always used in a negative sense, 
as though Judas has never really understood who Jesus really is. He calls him rabbi. Jesus says to him, friend, do what you came to do. Now there's a word for friend. Phileo, you know the word, phileo, to love. There's a word friend like that. But Jesus doesn't use that word. He uses a different word, which is basically, all right, buster. All right, buddy. Oh, you're, you're there. I know who you are. Come and do what you're going to do. In other words, he's saying, I know what you're really up to. Judas would have recognized that, that now Jesus is distancing himself from him. He's not saying, my beloved friend Judas. He's calling a buster, and he says, do what you came to do. And this, again, reminds us that in all of this, this is all part of the script that God had written from the beginning. All of this was written out by the prophet, as Zechariah says, and will happen according to God's plan. So when he says, do what you came to do, it's really do what you were designed to do. Then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So we see, first of all, this betrayal with a kiss. Secondly, beginning in verse 51, we see an event where Peter now reacts in violence to this moment. In verse 51, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus, and we know the one is Peter because John like rats him out in John. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John tells us that it was Peter that did this and cut off the ear of a man named Malchus. Jesus then sees what Peter does. Peter, in this moment, a man who failed to stay awake in Gethsemane, a man who failed to pray as he was told, then in this moment of crises, grabs a sword and strikes out in violence against Malchus. And Jesus' response was not, thank you, Peter, for standing up for me. His response instead was, put your sword back into its place. Jesus tells Peter that violence is now in this moment not the answer. This is not how Jesus will bring his kingdom to bear in this world. He's got a different plan. And it's not as Peter and the disciples, and frankly, all Jews thought at the time, that the Messiah would come and with violence they would overthrow the Romans. Jesus says instead, it's going to happen differently. And he gives Peter three reasons. First, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He says that violence just begets more violence. And if you're going to go down that road and play that game, it's going to get really ugly for all of us. That's not how God intended to bring in his kingdom. So the first reason is it's not uh, God's plan. Secondly, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus tells Peter, if I really wanted to defeat this little cabal going on here with Judas and these uh, Jewish leaders and, and these men, I could have done that. I could have called down 12,000 angels. They would have defeated them. But he says, even though I have the power, that's not my plan. So let's not do it that way. And then he gives him a third reason in verse 54. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And again, Jesus basically says, this is all part of God's plan. We have to now recognize that God has a way of working this out. So let's let God do it his way and not your way. And so with these three reasons, he tells Peter, we're not going to do it by violence. 
And that leads us now to the third element of this section. And that is that Jesus gives a defense of who he is. Now, he's not going to defend himself before Pilate in this way. But right now, he's, he does. In verse 30, uh, 55, he says, At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, remember, crowds came out, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? The word robber here is the Greek word leistes, which is a word which speaks of those who are guerrilla, uh, basic uh, guerrilla warfare, those who are rebels, those who are robbing so they can fund their rebellion. And so the idea is not simply someone who's a pickpocket or someone who just uh, sm uh, steals small things. He says, are you coming after me like I'm one who's trying to lead this rebellion? And he says, basically, you know that's not what I've done. He goes on to say, day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. His defense is, every day you heard me teaching. You know that's not what I'm doing. My goal here is not to lead a rebellion against the Romans in this way. Instead, he says, you heard my teaching. So why are you out here as though I'm the one that's the rebel, as though I'm the evil one? He continues on, but all this was taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Again, again for the third time, Jesus points to the script that was written. The prophets had already written this script, and God will do it his own way. So we see the shepherd's defense. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Again, Jesus could have done it a different way. When the shepherd is struck down in Zechariah, it says that the sheep will be scattered. And when Jesus says to Peter, we're not doing it by violence, he's saying it will be done according to that scripture. He's saying, in essence now, when the shepherd is struck down, he's not expecting the sheep to rise up on their hind quarters and begin to battle back. But you will be scattered. But again, remember what he said earlier. We will be gathered in Galilee. And we'll see at the end of the resurrection that they would be gathered, gathered in Galilee. There would be a restoration. But for now, the disciples in fear run away. So this leads us to the fourth moment, the Jewish trial and judgment before the Sanhedrin. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat down with the guards to see the end. Peter follows Jesus, who's taken captive, to the place where there would be this trial in the courtyard. Now, we've often heard and know that the trial at night would have been illegal under Jewish law. And that's certainly the case later in Jewish history. Scholars debate whether or not it was exactly true then. The documents we have, the Talmud that talks about it being uh, illegal to try a man at night, show up a couple hundred years after these events. But it probably was illegal. Nevertheless, do you think the Sanhedrin really cared about the rules of trying him? That wasn't in their makeup. Notice what it says, continuing on. Uh, it says in verse 59, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. They weren't looking for true testimony. They were willing to take even false testimony. They just wanted something to get on this man. So they seek the false testimony, but verse 60, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. 
If you solicit false testimony, you might find some. But I think it sounds like the testimony that they heard was so obviously not true that even the Sanhedrin felt like, well, we've got to do something better than this. These false witnesses aren't giving us any credible sort of story. Their stories are conflicting in one way or another. So they recognized that something more was needed. Then it says that two came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, quote of Jesus, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, with this testimony, we hear Jesus being told, Jesus apparently saying that he would destroy the temple. Now, did Jesus really say that? Not really. He didn't say that he would destroy that temple. As we saw in Matthew 24, he did say that the temple would be destroyed. He didn't say he would do it, but it would be destroyed. He did say that. And in John, he did say that destroy this temple, referring to himself, and I will raise in three days. But he never said that he would destroy that big, magnificent structure itself. And to do so, they thought, that's good enough to get him. That's good enough for treason, even though they would have said it's not physically possible for one man to destroy this magnificent temple. It was still a statement of rebellion against the Jewish leaders and against the Romans that he would even say to do such a thing. And they didn't take any qualms about executing a man who spoke in rebellious ways such as this. And so they thought, that's good enough. And when they do, they ask him. And in verse 62, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. He didn't really answer the question. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Where it says there that Jesus remained silent, it reminds us of Isaiah 53, where the one who was led to slaughter remains silent. But then Caiaphas, in anger, uses the word, I adjure you. Now, if you've ever used that word, you know you really mean something now. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, are you the Son of God? Are you the living Christ? Are you him? Jesus doesn't answer yes when Caiaphas asks a question. And that's because Jesus knows that Caiaphas doesn't know exactly what he's talking about. Whenever you answer a question, yes, you're automatically adopting all of the terms that the questioner is giving you. Whenever you say yes to somebody's question, you're saying, I agree with everything you said. Jesus can't answer yes in the same way because to do so would be to say that I agree with you, Caiaphas, that the coming Messiah will be one that leads a rebellion. And that's not what I'm here doing. And so Jesus couldn't say yes in this way. But what he does say, he says, it says in verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. And this is Jesus' way of saying a qualified yes, but not on the terms that you're talking about. Yes, I am the Messiah. I am the son of the living God. But don't think of me in the same way that you're thinking. I'm something different from that. And so Jesus gives him this acknowledgement. Yes, but not in the way you're saying. And he tells him then in uh, continuing, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What Jesus does here is most extraordinary. He turns the table on Caiaphas, who's the judge. And he says to the judge, yes, I am that Messiah, 
but not in the way you're thinking. But you will see, and one day I will be coming down to judge you. The description of coming down in the clouds of heaven is that language again that speaks of God's coming judgment on all those who are his enemies. So what Jesus is saying to Caiaphas is, you think you're judging me, but I'm the one who will be judging you. I'm the one who will be judging Israel for its rejection of the Messiah. I'm the one who's judging this temple and all that it stands for, for its rejection of who I am. So Jesus is saying that he's the judge. Now, to give you some free legal advice, if you ever stand before a district court judge and he gives you a sentence of guilty, your response is not, no, judge, you're the one guilty. You're the one who's condemned. Because he will sentence you not only for the first crime, but he will sentence you for direct contempt. And what Jesus is doing here is really an action of direct contempt against Caiaphas. And Caiaphas did what every single judge in the country would do, and that's to react in anger. And it goes on to describe what he does in verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes, his robes, and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. Caiaphas says, We need nothing else. Whether what these witnesses said is true or not no longer matters because Jesus' contempt of blasphemy in this courtroom is enough. He's condemned based on that. You can see Caiaphas in his anger tearing his clothes and, and, and in, in rage. They answered, he asked the question, what is your judgment? He looks to this jury, what is your judgment? And they say, Jesus deserves death. And so the sentence of death is passed. And then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Who is it that struck you? And again, Jesus here is simply following God's plan. And at the same moment when these evil men, they thought they were following their own plan, sentencing Jesus to his death, God knew and Jesus knew that this was all part of God's plan. There was no other way for our salvation to come. And this leads us now to Peter's denial in uh, verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And the words used here, sitting outside, makes it sound like these were contemporaneous events. While Jesus is inside being condemned, Peter's sitting outside. And we see here three moments where Jesus denies Jesus. And a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But Peter denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. So the first servant girl comes up. You were with him, weren't you? And he says, I do not know what you mean. So you see his denial here is a little less clear. He denies it. Secondly, he goes on. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he had denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So Peter, the second one, ups the ante a little bit with an oath. Remember, Jesus said, don't give an oath, just yeses, yeses, noes, and noes. He says, I give an oath. I do not know this man. Then we see the third denial. The bystanders come up to Peter. Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Now, here's the troubling point of this verse. When you read it in the English translations, it says, 
again, that Peter invoked a curse on himself and to swear. And if you compare the English translations, they kind of deal with this differently. Some say he began to curse and swear, which would lead you to think that he's actually just, you know, speaking French in front of all of them. And that's not what Peter's doing. When it says that he invoked a curse on himself in English, you might be surprised to know that it doesn't say that in the Greek. It simply says he began to invoke a curse. When you invoke a curse, it's what's called a transitive verb, which means it always has a direct object. It's not reflexive. If Peter invoked a curse on himself, he would have said on himself. It doesn't. It was understood the curse was somewhere else. Who is Peter really cursing? And I think the true answer is he invoked a curse on Jesus. He said, I curse this man. That's the real nature of Peter's denial here. It was an overt curse against Jesus himself. And so you see, this is now amped up a lot. It's not simply on myself. I'm denying him. I deny that I know him. I give an oath I don't know him. I even was willing to curse the man. Plenty the elder, a Roman senator some years later, would say that you can always tell the Christian because you can never get them to deny and curse Jesus Whatever they say, if you demand that they curse Jesus, they can never say that. Then you will know who true believers are. And after these moments, that became the sign of what it took to be a true believer, that you would never, ever reject who Christ is. So we see in these moments here that you will deny me three times. And then it says, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. This is the last mention of Peter. He's not mentioned in Matthew again. The last mention of him is him leaving and weeping bitterly. Now, if we were to kind of wrap up what we've seen so far, we can see three things that Peter's done wrong. First, first, he relied too much on his own strength. Early in the story, we saw Peter saying, I will never deny you. And the word I in Greek is ego, like ego. In his own ego, he said, I will never deny you, failing to recognize that he would need the power of the Spirit to make that promise true. So he relied on himself too much. Secondly, he was too concerned about what others thought of him. He looked at the servant girls who looked at him and said, aren't you with him? He was afraid of what they thought, so he denied Jesus there. And we too can't be too afraid about what others think of us. And then the third thing he does is he speaks without thinking. And I don't doubt in Peter's life, sometime later, he never forgot this moment. Every time he heard a rooster, it would have triggered in his mind this moment. He spoke without thinking about what he was really saying. So those are the three mistakes that Peter made. But you think about uh, what did Peter get right? The first thing he did was he, in grief, repented. He went out and wept bitterly. And that's a symbol of what Peter did in repentance. He knew that he had failed. He had failed Jesus in this moment. The second thing that we see as the story continues is he spent time with other believers. After these moments... Jesus goes to the crucifixion, and on the Easter morning, as we know, where's Peter? He's with all of them. They're all together. Peter could have gone out and in self-pity wallowed out there somewhere, but he spent time with the other disciples, and on the first Easter morning, he was with them. And the third thing that Peter does, as we see in 1 Peter 5, is he advises all of us in our grief to cast our cares on Jesus because, he says, he cares for us. And so the response that Peter has is that we have a God who recognizes our failures but cares for us nonetheless.
The same is true of Jesus. Jesus now looks at us and he cares for us. The book of Hebrews says that he cares for us. He intercedes on our behalf. He does not abandon us. So when we feel abandoned, when we feel rejected, when we feel betrayed, we know that we have a Savior who does not abandon us, who does not reject us, and who will not betray us. His promise to us is certain and will be fulfilled. Uh, Let's pray. As the music team comes forward, I just want to give you a moment to think about these words, to think about the commitment that Christ requires of us, that we be faithful. And we know that we have the strength to be strong, even in our weakness, that we have the spirit that that lives within us, that leads us to live the life that we should. So we don't rely on our own strength, we rely on him. Let's stand together as we begin to sing and remember what Christ has done for us. bow your heads with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, God, you are so good to us. God, you've given us instructions on how to wait well for you. It seems like a lot, but you've given us your riches. You've given us your Holy Spirit, everything we need to be successful in this endeavor. And when we fail you, as we often do, you love us, you pick us up, you dust us off, and you say, try again. And so we say, like a bride waiting for her groom, even so, Lord Jesus, please come. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.